So I am super excited to be joined by somebody I would like to call a friend. I hope he doesn't mind me calling him a friend. And, <laughs> uh, and uh, somebody that I always enjoy chatting to because he makes me think and stretches my thoughts around things like talent acquisition and talent management. So welcome, Simon Lucas, who is, can I call you the chief executive of uh, Society Search? Um, you can. I mean, my job title is Managing Director of Society, which sounds terribly Orwellian and silly. But um, yeah, that's what I, I do today, John. I think society in general would be a better place if you were the managing <laughs> director of it, Simon. Um, we met uh, a, a while ago through a mutual contact, and uh, we have both uh, worked with and supported the fantastic Argacon Development Network. And I would describe society as the organization that recruits amazing talent for the types of organizations that make a difference to society. Is that a good description? How would you describe society search? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we um, want to find exceptional people for meaningful roles within responsible businesses, purpose-driven organizations, you know, organizations that are trying to do something positive in the wider world. Um, and we're also trying to be responsible corporate citizens ourselves. So we are a, a certified B Corporation. We give a chunk of our profits every year to charity through the Society Foundation that we help to set up. You know, we're, we're trying to change the reputation of our industry, which, let's face it, isn't great, um, gradually. <laughs> Well, we should talk about the reputation of your industry a bit later on in this conversation and just give us a flavour of the types of organisations you're referring to, or maybe the sectors, if you prefer. It's, it's a really eclectic mix of, of clients. We're a retained executive search firm, so we tend to work at the more senior level, obviously. Um, but you, you'll find us working on, say, the chief executive appointment for Stonewall, um, the executive director of the United World Colleges movement mm -hmm. but also for big private sector companies like um b and q and kingfisher and mandarin oriental um it, for us it's about finding clients who we feel share our values and, and who we can be excited about and who we can identify you know exceptional and diverse candidates for that's brilliant. And today we are going to talk about the world of talent acquisition, including whether we should use the acquisition word. More on that in a second. And uh, I'm not going to uh, ask you to uh, tell us what's in your passport, but how long have you been working in this sector and, and what brought you into it, Simon? Well, I mean, you talk to most headhunters, they'll confess that they stumbled into it because... Yep. Uh, you know, people don't even learn that this sector exists until they're already embarked on a career. Um, and in my case, I was working for the University of Warwick in the UK, and we brought in some headhunters to help us on the vice-chancellor appointment there, and they offered me a job. Um, and I, I took it mostly as an opportunity to move to London and see what sort of slightly more corporate life was like. found I really enjoyed it, though, because... Um, First and foremost, on a sort of superficial level, it's a license to be nosy, right? You, you get to know people and organizations on quite an intimate level um, quite quickly. And, and that was fascinating. But then over time, what I discovered is you can also have a, an indirect but still quite profound impact because the, the ripple effect from a uh, you know, senior person taking on a, a significant role can 
be really big. They, they will touch a lot of lives, for better yeah. or worse. Yeah. Um, and also, I could see that there was an opportunity to bring a more diverse group of, of leaders to the fore, to, to you know, quite literally, in some cases, change the face of what leadership looks like yeah. in, in sectors. And, and that got me excited as well. So uh, that, that's what brought me into the sector, got me hooked on it. That's what led to me setting up society, what, 11 years ago now. Crikey. And you know what? I'll just be, I'll say this really bluntly. You know, often people put headhunters in the same bracket as estate agents and car yeah. dealers. Yeah. And uh, that's really rude to all three of those, because what are the three most personal acquisitions or the most emotive acquisitions in our lives? Our job, our home, and for many of us, our car. And uh, let's not malign three sectors. Let's think about <laughs> the quality of the people who we're interacting with um, when we're touching those sectors. Um, I, I didn't know you'd uh, worked at Warwick University. Uh, little known fact, I spent uh, two and a half years working on an industrial estate, although they like to call it a business park, which I think is a bit glamour <laughs> more glamorous, yeah. um, uh, next to Warwick University, Westwood Business Park. Um, I want to talk, as I said, I want to talk about talent acquisition today, because, uh, you know, I have a feeling that uh, during this period of COVID, the never-ending conversation of COVID, talent acquisition has changed a lot from the psychological contract we seek with work mm. to the working arrangement we seek with work to if we are an employer, who are we recruiting under what guise and where are we recruiting them from? So a bit of a broad question to start with, Simon. How do you see the impact uh, of COVID on where we're at with talent acquisition today? Well, if I start from a personal perspective, and my part of the talent acquisition landscape, um, yeah, I, I think it'd be remiss not to mention it was pretty alarming at, mm. at first. When the first wave of COVID-19 hit, most organisations simply stopped hiring. They just froze everything. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, we as headhunters have live assignments being cancelled, debtors wanting to renegotiate payment terms, our pipeline of work dried up overnight. Yeah. And, and also, you know, we try and treat clients and candidates like human beings. And, and as human beings, they were all experiencing their own personal journey through this crisis. And yeah. you know, family members who were ill, they were ill. We've had friends of the firm who've lost people who have mm. long COVID, who were made mm. redundant. It, it's been really tough and, and difficult. And I, I think that's the first and most immediate impact of, mm. of the pandemic. Um, and then when organizations started tentatively hiring again, you start to see how the world has altered, yep. right? And, um, and and that's where I think the things you're talking about, Tom, have started to come to the fore. Yes, um, hiring practices have changed. Um, and, and I think a lot of that change is going to be permanent. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, video interviewing is not going anywhere anytime yeah. soon. As at least as a Video anything is thing. not going anywhere. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think roles are going to become uh, you know, much more easy to work remote now that most organizations have seen how successful um, a sizable chunk of remote working can be. Um, but we've also seen some negative changes as well. It, yeah, people, um, as, as lockdowns began to ease in a lot of places around the world, were still noticeably more reluctant than in the past to consider relocation, particularly international relocation. Yeah. Um, because the experience of suddenly finding yourself essentially stuck on the other side of the world, far away from friends and family, is not um, appealing. Is, is not appealing, absolutely. And um, 
but thankfully we're, we're starting to see that evolve and, and change again, but it's by far a uniform picture because the experience of the pandemic is, is still um, far from uniform. You know, I'm sitting here in the, the UK double jabbed and um, with the kids back at school, but you know, we've got um, an office in Auckland where colleagues are still under lockdown. Um, and cases in the Delta variant are starting to explode again. So I, I think it's still too early to prophesize with any level of great accuracy what this is going to look like. Suffice to say, it's changed the world, hasn't it? I think so. And I think to your earlier point, there are things that people have experienced, such as remote working, um, being able to choose colleagues and consultants anywhere in the world rather yeah. than within close proximity to the office where people are not going to say well actually I'm going back to how it was what what, what do you see as the key changes in terms of remote roles are we moving to non-geospecific roles are we moving to a world where people are suddenly waking up and saying actually I don't need to recruit within a 30 mile radius of Reading head office I don't need anybody in Britain I can I can recruit from a different part of the world is is it that extreme or is that just a, a fantasy no, that, that's absolutely the direction of travel, um, to my mind. And it's not just COVID that's driving that. You know, there, okay. there are at least uh, two other big macro trends that point in that direction. Uh, the first is the climate emergency. Right. Um, we are all just going to have to travel less in the future. And, and both of us have been in situations briefly, <laughs> we've talked about it, where we've been expected to hop on a flight to attend an hour-long meeting. Yep. Somewhere. Those um, days are gone. <laughs> everyone's been in a situation where they've had to kind of commute into a city centre office just to spend the day sat in front of a computer. That that's madness. That has to stop. We can't afford the emissions. Um, and then secondly, yeah, diversity. Um, if you want to draw in more uh, parents with young children back into the workforce, mm. or you want to attract older workers because people are going to be working longer and longer, or you yeah. want to attract um, disabled people. Um, options for remote working will arguably do more than anything else to help bring that about. Um, and so as organizations really start to think purposefully about equality, diversity and inclusion, I think that also shifts you towards non-geospecific roles. There are big obstacles though, and, and one is obviously differences in employment law and practices and yep, you know, very true. tax arrangements and needing to be incorporated in various different countries and, and so forth. So that will act as a natural break. Um, but for that, you know, but for that obstacle, I, I think um, it, we, we would see a lot of organizations really starting, yeah, not to care even what time zone you're in anymore. And what, what does that mean for me as, as a, let's say senior level board minus two in a blue chip organization somewhere in the UK or US, um, am I going to find myself competing with people uh, on a different continent who would likely cost my employer much less? Is, is that too simplistic a, a way of looking at it? Um, I, I think it's a, a valid perspective looking at it. I, I think the more positive way of framing it is you you also have a much wider range of opportunities that you can begin to consider and express an interest in. You're, you're far less geographically tied yourself. So yeah, yeah yes, as with globalization in, in the macro sense, it, um, it creates you know, challenges and competition, but it also creates opportunity 
um, as well. And I think it's going to change the sort of skills organizations are trying to recruit for, don't you? I I, I think so. I, I think, you know, one of my uh, pet topics is talent leasing. Um, you know, I'm not sure about the whole world talent acquisition, uh, word talent acquisition. I, I think you have some reservations about it as well. You know, why why do I need to sign up and feel owned by an organization? Why can't I, almost on a commercial service level type of arrangement, uh, lease myself to an organization for a fixed period of time in order to, to help them get over a hurdle? And, you know, speaking to a lot of uh, colleagues, friends, you know, uh, people are discovering that they like to do the fixing and not the business as usual. So why can't they be yeah. leased to do the fixing rather than the business as usual? What, what do you think about that? I've no doubt in my mind that we will see a lot more freelancing, um, a lot more part-timers, a lot more gig workers. Um, it, in the future, it's, it's going to be um, a much more flexible um, world of work. Um, and, and that's been... Yeah, again, the direction of travel pre-COVID. I think you know, COVID's maybe lit a bit of a fire on it in new ways. Um, and uh, yeah, again, big, big sort of macro trends driving that, aren't they? We've got bigger populations. We've got a, a rate of societal and economic change that's faster than anyone ever thought possible and, and shortened average job tenures. So all of that means all of us are going to be recruited a lot more uh, during the course of our life, there's going to be a lot more recruitment going on. Um, yeah. We're going to have to recruit more people ourselves. And um, and so approaching that big task with just a very fixed, rigid model of what work looks like, of what the, the exchange between an organization and talent looks like would be a yeah, terribly myopic, wouldn't it? Yeah, but Simon, at the same time, and this is mm, maybe a gut sensation rather than uh, uh, you know, an, an accurate viewing of the, of the market, and you will have a, obviously a much better view of that than I, but I still feel that big organizations are reluctant or nervous or to talent lease people, and they prefer to have someone on the books, so to speak. I still have this feeling that they're not courageous enough about being creative with their... Um, uh, their, their talent relationships with, with, with people in the market. I feel that those in the market or who could be in the market are much more open to being creative and flexible than the people that are likely recruiting them. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. Um, but I think the needle is shifting. You, you do. You can see that, yeah. Okay. Um, and um, yeah, a lot of the organizations that are starting to emerge now, the, the, um, the, the organizations that will be the big kind of market leaders in different industries in you know, 10, 15 years time are much more forward thinking on this stuff. Um, the, yeah, the ones that predominate at the moment, their working MO was, was forged in a slightly different era. And so in, yeah, inevitably they're gonna be a bit more conservative, but um, uh, I think the future definitely tilts in this more flexible way. Because the, as you say, the demand's there. There are, there are lots of people out there who, who want to work in this way. And, and ultimately speaking, that, yeah, that is what will clinch it, is um, organisations want the best people. 
they want the best talent. And if th- that talent is saying to them, I don't want to be on your books, yeah. um, then eventually they will respond. Yeah, I, I think one of the biggest changes in, in COVID is our, our view of work, our relationship of work, the, the blurring between work and non-work and the way that we uh, view our relationship with our employer and how we feel owned or, or not owned. And I think a lot of people, uh, you know, the, the, the Sunday shivers, you know, oh my God, it's school again tomorrow. Nobody wants that on any given day of the week. And therefore, I think a lot of employees, a lot of my clients as organizations are struggling with the conversations to have with their employees around, okay, how do we make this work? Because what person X wants is massively different to what person Y wants. And let's not even talk about, about what person Z wants because we have, haven't even got that far. So I, I think being able to help organizations facilitate, how do you have um, hyper-personalization in terms of uh, your relationship with work and your contract with work? And to your earlier point, how that then transcends different jurisdictions and different uh, global pay scales, etc. I, I think we're still all working it out, if I'm honest. I think we are. And it, it is difficult. You know, we need to talk about this more. Um, diversity is a great thing in every sense. It's a source of resilience. It's, um, uh, I, yeah, I think there's a moral imperative behind it as well, but it, it also gives organizations fewer strategic blind spots and it allows you to draw in talent from more different directions. And uh, yeah, diversity in the sense of bringing people in with different characteristics, different lived experiences, but also different working patterns and different expectations of what work involves but it's really hard because suddenly you're you're accommodating um a much wider set of needs and requirements and practices and cultures and um you know that takes a lot of hard purposeful work a lot of compromises um it's worth it though it's it is Prize is 100% worth it, but we should be a little bit more honest about you know, some of the the challenges and the pain that's in, inherent in connecting it all up. And I want to talk about connecting it all up because, you know, one organization, you know, maybe the, the, the board of an organization or uh, the leadership of an organization will come to a person like me and say, we need to redefine our values. That's our response to COVID. You know, wh- what do we stand for? Who are we? Which is a noble and admirable and not incorrect thing to do. You know, what does it mean to live our values? What does it mean to be aligned behind our values? And then they'll come to you, a person like you uh, and say, okay, we want you to uh, go out and recruit somebody who's going to be totally disruptive and countercultural because that will help us innovate. And there's this uh, mind conundrum going on inside the organization. And so how do you recruit for diversity and difference in the broadest sense and also recruit for cultural fit and appropriate level of acceptance? See, it's, it's very um, challenging. And I've heard you and Clancy talk a number of times about yeah. uh, the danger of tissue. We must resurrect Clancy. But- she needs to get off 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 her sofa and come back and do some stuff. That's a good prod. Yes, Clancy, we're coming for you. Anyway, carry on, Simon. I like that term tissue rejection. I can't remember which of you I've heard use it, but um, I think it's a neat analogy for what it can feel like when an organizational culture isn't flexible 
enough to incorporate someone different. Um, but if, if I'm honest, I think the hard yards that are necessary in order to avoid that happening actually have to be un undertaken ages before any decision to hire is, is made. So probably before my phone starts ringing. And <laughs> it's, it's about whether your culture is first and foremost tied to and defined by specific traditions and ways of yep. doing things, or whether you're ultimately defined by the collective impact you want to have and the values you want to live by. And yep. if it's the latter, if that's the cultural drumbeat that's coming from the very top of the organization, then you should be able to flex and adapt. Um, and if, if you achieve that, then suddenly your talent acquisition function or your headhunters, they're liberated. They can go out and genuinely recruit for diversity, knowing that it won't be an insurmountable obstacle if the best person for the job um, you know, needs to do the school run twice a day or has a broad Nigerian accent or is on the autistic spectrum or yeah, has the pronouns they and them. Um, it's that the, the ecosystem is going to have that flexibility within it in order to evolve and assimilate them. Um, I don't know how much we can control that as headhunters working in our little recruitment silo. We, we kind of need to connect with other gears in the machine in order to make that happen. And I think that's where organizations like yours, and I want to ask you about the future of search in a second. I think that's where, where an organization like yours needs to partner with someone like me or uh, absorb someone like me, and I'm not applying for a job, um, because too often, and challenge me on this, talent acquisition is doing talent acquisition inside an organization and isn't speaking closely enough to those who lead on culture and organization environment. And that's assuming the organization has somebody who's in charge of organizational culture or organizational environment, and they haven't got a modular HR function. Um, yeah. That, yeah, I, 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 I think you're absolutely that. right. I, I, I think you've got a kind of cog in the machine that is all about how do we define our culture and our values in a way that is um, sufficiently flexible, that it's, it's going to be meaningfully inclusive. You've got a cog in the machine that is about how do we find and attract the best people, which is, is the one I kind of occupy. And then you've got a cog around how do we onboard and assimilate people and set them up and support them for success in, in post. And, and those three um, don't connect enough. They when they connect. do that, I mean, do you want a silly example? Yeah. Um, so back, back in my first firm, my former firm, we, we used to, um, welcome every new colleague we hired with a slap-up meal at uh, Bodine's in, in London's Soho district. I don't even know where it exists anymore, but it's, it was a, it a barbecue meat joint, right? So huge yeah. quantities of meat and delicious sticky sauces, and it, it was amazing. Um, and one day, we inevitably, we hired our first vegetarian. <laughs> and so, yeah, what, what happens? Do you stick with the established way of doing things and force this person to participate or just... I hope you didn't sit, sit there hungry watching you eat pulled pork or do you skip skip it entirely and go back to it for the next person and and instantly mark that person out as an insider or or do you evolve the kind of tradition and the working practice because the thing that was important is it, it was just a tradition about establishing we're a team and creating good sort of interpersonal relationships it wasn't the meat it was that that it was all about and and so you 
you change it. Now, if the, if the cogs work up correctly, then you kind of know when you're hiring this person that you're bringing in someone with an element of difference. So you can start to think about it early on and anticipate some of the ways in which you need to, to change and evolve. You've done all the work leading up to the decision to hire in terms of you know, being really clear around what matters and what doesn't, being really mm -hmm. clear around mm -hmm. your, your values and your purpose rather than just this is our way of doing things. And um, and then once you've got the person in, you, you're sort of sticking close for them, and you 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 broadened your inclusivity lens to think about you know, what's the food that's served at company events, you know, what's the menu choice on offer at the Christmas party, and that sort of stuff. It's a silly example because vegetarianism is you know, um, and you know it's it's a pretty easy to to solve one by the the standards of accommodating diversity, but um, it was my first experience of okay yeah this is what it means to change and evolve and accept um difference and i've seen that repeated again and again and again and again um as, as organizations try and uh, accommodate change and i'm glad you mentioned it because i i don't actually think it is a frivolous example because and i was before i'd heard about your bodine's uh pulled pork um <laughs> example in the vegetarians i was going to say look you know i, I get what you're saying simon around my I, I, you know thick nigerian accent wantons work two days a week somebody with a physical impairment i i actually see lots of exclusion happening inside organizations which have nothing to do with that the organization through education has broadly moved on from that um will always have work to do the exclusion is happening because there is a lack of individual and collective self-awareness which is oh uh, through things like affinity bias and conformity bias mm -hmm. and halo and horns um you know we all like football uh and those that feel included are those that go to the pub and talk about football and coincidentally and unconsciously have a nickname back in the office and those with a nickname back in the office feel part of the in crowd not a made-up example an absolutely true recent uh example um you know in inclusion exclusion happens or doesn't happen because of things like affinity bias and conformity bias and a, an organization with a which has the potential to be an amazing community of diverse talents suddenly finds uh, uh, a reason to become a clan or a cult because those seemingly diverse people actually are all extroverts uh yeah. and yeah. Uh, the one introvert that you're recruiting at a senior level gets the tissue rejection so i i think there's still a lot of work to be done on that front and you know i'm working with an organization that uh, i love and respect hugely and i'm going to talk to them about uh, diversity equality and inclusion this week and my, my opening gambit is i'm not going to talk to you about um eid or gay pride or international women's day i'm going to talk about how a lack of inclusion can really impact your safety agenda because uh, safety is your number one priority but through things like halo and horns um bob can't do anything wrong jane can't do anything right uh you're letting bob get away with things on the safety agenda that uh jane can't get away with so it's so fascinating it is it's endlessly fascinating because it's it's about dealing with human beings in all their variety yes yeah. <laughs> the interactions and collisions of them as well so i i find it a topic that's really 
stimulating, but also that's just so toweringly important because, um, you know, we, we cannot move forward effectively if um, huge swathes uh, of you know, the population are feeling that they're kind of slightly on the outside looking in. Um, and I think back to your earlier point, that is the one big thing around COVID. We have finally, some people begrudgingly in terms of organizations, others in a more I bloody told you so for the last 10 years kind of way, realize that human beings come to work, not employees. I think just so many organizations haven't realized, okay, but what does that mean and how do we adapt to that? Um, I, uh, I'm conscious of time and, you know, I, I rudely said at the start of this call that often search uh, headhunters, search firms get lobbed in the same group as estate agents and car dealers. And those three are very respectable um, and much vital um, uh, industries. But if I think about why, and I think back to my early days in, in talent uh, acquisition uh, back in the 90s uh, at British Airways, you know, Search, many search firms brought it on themselves because it was money for old rope. Uh, a researcher did lots of the work. Uh, uh, you can tell me off for this. Um, and uh, large sums of money were uh, handed over to pay for marbled offices in Mayfair. And uh, do you want person X, Y, or Z? We'd recommend Z, but we can negotiate with Y if you want. And that that was kind of it. Yeah. Um, you guys are not like that. That's why you're a friend. That's why I work with you. You make differences. Where do you see the future of search? And if I'm sitting in a big talent acquisition role inside an organization, what should my relationship, my partnership, my value for money be from and with my search partner? Yeah, well, so to, while we're piling on um, <laughs> the industry. So you, and you don't have a marbled office. I know that. And it's not <laughs> no. in Mayfair. No, precious little marble. Um, yeah, the other thing I, I think that's contributed to our kind of crappy reputation as an industry is, is um, a habit of treating people as a means to an end rather than an yep. end in themselves. And maybe yep. that's the philosophy graduate in me coming out. But I, I think people sense it when they feel that you are only interested them, in them as a way of achieving some other objective. And it's always yep. been very, very important to me that we treat people as an end in themselves, that we're interested in, in individuals and regardless of their immediate utility to us. Going back to your question, I mean, um, I think there will always be a handful of firms with marbled offices in Mayfair. <laughs> some, some clients want it. Um, that's never been us. It never will be. Um, and, and I guess as I look to the future of the industry, I'm, I'm betting on a few things. Yeah. I think firstly, search firms are increasingly going to be in, expected to be actual thought leaders around equality, diversity, and inclusion with yeah. a you know, concrete track record of success that they can point to. Yeah. Constant supply of new ideas for driving positive change. And, and that in order to do all of that, uh, we will need to underpin our approaches with data rather than just good intentions. Um, so I think that is a big, um, big development that you're starting to really see play out now. I think secondly, global reach is going to be ever more vital because the broad trajectory in the last 40 years, the last 
18 months notwithstanding is yeah. the world growing ever smaller and more interconnected and that's that's going to continue um and if roles are becoming less geospecific as we talked about then um suddenly the ability to really do effective uh global hiring processes becomes you know, really important and then, and then thirdly i think um hopefully the relationship of our sector to, to talent is going to be less transactional increasingly about building long-term relationships helping people achieve their career goals and objectives as much as helping clients to to find someone to fill role a b or c and and that means that suddenly you're much more than ever before brand ambassadors for the organizations you work with yeah. um and and therefore responsibility becomes ever more important how you treat people what what is the impact you have on your community and and the planet um yeah we, we've set out to reach net zero by 2030 partly because we we just need to like that's a, something every organization should be doing because everything's on fire but um but also i i fully expect very soon clients are going to start asking us you know what are your emissions yeah. um what are you Our doing to try and solve some of these devastating social problems um in the world and i want to make sure we have an answer when they they ask that so th th that's how i think it's evolving and, and my, my add to that simon my request is that organizations like yours encourage support and push clients to be more creative with their resourcing model um that you develop an opportunity to work for both candidate and client because as to to your earlier point you know we're all going to be recruited much more uh you know candidates will want to manage their career and say okay i need to go somewhere i'm ready for my next move rather than sitting passively inside an organization past my sell by date i want to proactively move and go somewhere and i need assistance uh doing that so i think you become a broker for both sides and i think if people like you and I work more closely together, we can uh, support organizations on looking at their culture and how they recruit or resource uh, to perpetuate their, uh, their culture in, in a disruptive but positive way. And so that sure. between you and I, we manage to eliminate tissue rejection and increase diversity and inclusion. Simon, thank you so much. I've so enjoyed that conversation. And I hope that because we're both double jabs, um, uh, we get to see each other soon and uh, we can share a sandwich again very shortly because that, that is be always a pleasure. Uh, Simon, thanks, Tom. It's been nice talking to you. Not at all. Simon Lucas, Managing Director of Society, um, the search firm, not the world in which we live, unfortunately. Thank you so much. <laughs> Cheers. So I'm back with Neil. Neil, where have you been? Um, well, it's been a busy summer, Tom. Um, where haven't I been? I, I know where I haven't been. I haven't been uh, anywhere hot for a period of time, which um, I'm yearning for. But in due course, that will be happening now. I'm double jabbed. Yeah, well, uh, passport to go anywhere. And I should also apologise because uh, I've been a bit absent as well over the summer, but that's just because of life and client work and things. But I have made a promise that I will be much more dutiful in churning uh, out relevant, meaningful episodes of Hysterionics. Anyhow, um, 
Neil, what did you think of my chat with Simon? What a wonderful conversation. Um, I really enjoyed it. And as you know, my uh, I spent several years working for a large global executive search firm. And um, I think it was quite refreshing, some of the views on uh, things like, you know, zero emissions and ESG and, and other kind of elements which are so important to how um you know search firms are working with people globally um so i thought the views and opinions were were really good to hear and what, what do you think the future of those organizations is i mean you worked inside and alongside a really big brand in that market where do you think they need to go do one thing really well um is a mantra that you know i've heard a lot recently and I do know a lot of the, the larger firms are spreading their tentacles into different areas. And, you know, as a result, I think some clients are being confused by the offer. Right. And so, you know, actually a really good point from Simon earlier when he mentioned uh, the marble offices and, and, and the, the global offices. I don't think there's a need anymore, really. Um, that was driven by a generation who who wanted to go to the swanky part of town to have an interview. And surely, you know, if there's anything we've learned through the pandemic is that, you know, do you need to be in those parts of town to have an interview? You know, you said on the on the discussion, video is here to stay, right? And yeah. um, and so, you know, I think the the travel bills that happen as part of those firms and the um the overall kind of estate management piece that cost a fortune surely has to change um during all of this but I, what i really liked was you know actually people are becoming brand ambassadors when they they are you know looking at people searching for people talking to people so it's become much much more or less you know transactional than it's ever been and um, so i know you're a big fan of brand ambassadors so did that resonate with you as well yeah i i think that it was interesting i had a um a round table meeting this morning when uh, a search firm were asking me my views around what to do with candidates particularly from a diversity quality and inclusion perspective and that conversation plus the the discussion i had with simon really made me feel that people candidates should be at the heart of this process you know who they are what shapes them what makes them think what life considerations they have what life experience they have and uh, the recruitment process should be all about them and I know it's a really obvious thing to say but I think lots of search firms view them as a commodity in order to fulfill a uh, sales obligation and, and monthly targets. So I, I think that organizations need to see their candidates as uh, potential brand fans rather than um, uh, a commodity. Uh, I would also like organizations to be challenged more by search firms um, around being creative in their recruitment processes and recruitment models and and finding people from different backgrounds and different schools and not the same old backgrounds and job titles and same old schools and that they treat those people as, uh, as, as human beings. So for me, yeah, brand is massively important. Because I, I, I think it was really interesting when you talked about, I, I can't believe you said it actually to, to somebody who's in the industry, but I'm comparing you to an estate agent. Um, the conversation around talent leasing, which I know you're, you know, you're 
you're a big fan of um, and the fixer kind of versus the FTE. Where do you think that sits with executive search firms and how can they, you know, make their, make their money in such a market? So I, it's a really good question. And yeah, I am absolutely passionate about talent leasing. Why do we have to have somebody who's permanently on the books? Why can't we lease some amazing talent for a fixed period of time? But I think search firms need to become the facilitators of amazing talent relationships, which yeah. is uh, you're an organization, you need amazing talent, you're amazing talent, let me put you together. Let's um, Let's be open-minded about how it will work and what uh, the contract will look like, but let me let me be a facilitator of amazing talent relationships. That's what I think search firms should be doing, and not just uh, when they receive a brief or a request. But I'd want to know what search firms are doing to be talent acquisition partners when they've not got a brief. What are they doing to survey the market? What are they doing to? almost CRM the market of talent and propose people to organizations. Look, I've been looking at your strategy. I think, you know, I know you really well. I understand your business. Um, You're really missing this type of person. I know three of those types of people. And I think uh, they bring bring something amazing. So why don't we talk about it? But it is very transactional. It is very domino-led. Oh, somebody's resigned. Oh, there's a vacancy. Oh, we better fill it. Oh, let's call this person. Oh, let's go and look at the market. Oh, let's invite six people in for an interview. And, you know, the discussion I had this morning is, you know, my other passion is mental health. I don't think we think enough around mental health in the recruitment process. Now, lack of feedback, waiting, it takes six weeks. Um being told no for no obvious reason or being used as a as a sort of benchmark candidate or as a, almost like a stone that you're dropping in a pond to see what uh, the reaction is. We need to think about mental health in, in the recruitment process as well. Do you, do you think, because I, I completely agree, um, that whole recruitment process, I think, is in some, in some ways very traditional mm-hmm. in some uh, some of the firms, I think others have progressed in terms of looking at the whole person as opposed to just kind of competencies, for example, or looking at motivators, traits, drivers uh, in a much more kind of holistic way. But, you know, where does talent acquisition fit in this now? Because, you know, the, the heap of challenges on the table right now, I'm not a big fan of the great resignation kind of language, but the hybrid working piece, not enough um, certain talent in various places, you know, particularly in the tech space, or if you look more locally, you know, kind of down to core trades like lorry driving, you know, the talent acquisition relationship with search firms could change as a result, particularly if they're looking at drivers like ESG and, you know, 30% clubs, et cetera, et cetera. There could be a bit of a shift there if you're looking at talent leasing as well. I think there's two things in that, Neil. I think, Talent acquisition, firstly, is acquisition the right word, but let's call it that. Talent acquisition Mm -hmm. is too often divorced or separated from talent management. And it is one process. It's, you know, who have we got? Who haven't we got? How are those that we have got? How are they feeling? Where are they likely to move to? Where should we move them to? So it's it's a joined up fluid ecosystem that involves everything from who's in the market to who might we need to who have we got how do we develop them and I think there's just not enough of that and your point about ESG for me is talent acquisition is still too divorced from the whole 
cultural piece and that is brought to life through diversity equality inclusion which is we need to recruit a more diverse workforce great we can do it i've got statistics and metrics and i've done my job look at these diverse candidates that we've got but okay what environment are we bringing them into? What are we going to do to make sure that there isn't tissue rejection? What are we going to do to make sure that they can be absolutely themselves and drive positive change inside the organization? Those two things are still working very much against each other in the majority of organizations. So I hope ESG brings all of that together. And as I've said before, we should do an episode on ESG feel an episode coming on for sure um and <laughs> also I I'm... get to it quicker than this one <laughs> and i think i'm going to apply for the role of director of society as well uh, they so, are great so that... they are fab so I, can... <laughs> I can get rid of sunday shivers then which are a thing as you said and um make sure brand ambassadors are on the rise i think so so i think i'm going to go away and play with uh dogs and old french cars um what are you going to do with the rest of your day Autumn is here, um, so I think uh, I'm going to go for a run. What's autumn got to do with going for a run? I love running through the leaves as they fall post-summer. That's very nice. It's best time to run of the year. That's very poetic. That's very mm-hmm. nice. I've just got a, a, a very bucolic view of you running through leaves and them falling down around your ears and you panting and sweating. Anywho. <laughs> Let's leave um, it there. Uh, Neil and I will be back soon. We're going to resurrect Clancy. She's been massively busy. We need to uh, send out a search party for Dr. Keith because he needs to come and join us again soon. Uh, Any comments, please let myself or Neil know. Uh, We always appreciate feedback and your input into what shapes the next episode is absolutely vital. But uh, watch this space and we promise to be back really soon. In the meantime, please stay safe.